Hey, Typology family, Ian Cron here. Yes, once again to talk to you about the mystery of the human personality and the human adventure through the lens of the Enneagram. I'm joined here today, as always, as I have been for the last six years, by my friend Anthony Skinner. Anthony, how are you, my brother? I'm doing great, Ian. I have a lot of curiosity about how today's interview is going to go. Oh, look at you being all kinds of clever. <laughs> all kinds of clever. I'm excited yes. about our guest today. I'm really, I am really, too. Yes. Yeah. I am too. We're talking about Scott Shigeoka, who is an Enneagram 7 with an 8 wing. And more importantly, he is the author of this incredible new book titled Seek, How Curiosity Can Transform Your Life and Change the World. Scott, welcome to Typology. Thank you. I'm so excited. I feel like, I don't know, I'm just like this aura and this light that I've just stepped into <laughs> that you all have like created for me. Thank you. I feel very elevated and, and seen and supported. I appreciate it. Oh, I'm so, so glad. And you have so much seven energy. I'm about to like <laughs> yes. be blasted just under the wall behind me. me. That's yeah, right. Yeah. You, actually, it's true. Yeah. It's a real <laughs> yeah, thing. Some people say that there's colors that emanate from me, but it's just like numbers of sevens that are coming out of me. You know, like yes. non-visual right. sevens. Yeah. Yes. All of that. <laughs> oh, there you go. Wow. Cool. <laughs> Balloons up on your screen. Love it. That's right. Indeed. So... I love that an Enneagram 7 has written a book about curiosity because it's so aligned with seven interests and energies and their personality pattern. I want to talk first, though, about how you learned that you were a 7, how the Enneagram became part of it, and what difference does it make? Like, who cares? Like, just yeah. tell us, why does the Enneagram matter to you or how it's working yeah. for you? Yeah, I mean, I'm uh, newer on the journey. I mean, I, like most people, or a lot of people, I think, um, found it through just friends, like people who had taken the test and found a lot of um, self-understanding and reflection, but also it was a tool that they used to, you know, be in better relationship with folks, not even just at work. Actually, it was through the context of like romantic relationships and our friendships and things like that. And I was like, ooh, I like tools. That sounds fun. Um, and I've been known to take quizzes to learn about myself. I think the first online quiz I took was, um, how do you know if you're really gay? And it was like on BuzzFeed or so. I don't know. I don't know what platform it was on, but I was like, oh, maybe there's something here. So they they tend to be like a nice gateway into understanding myself. Uh, yeah. And I so I took the Enneagram test online. Um, and yeah, it was just like, there was like no doubt. I, I know sometimes people are like, oh, you could be this or you could be that. But like, I took multiple tests and they're all like seven, 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 seven across the boards. Like there's nothing. No, that's all you are. You're a seven. Um, and then I recently just learned about the wings because I had no, I mean, I'm still, you know, on the journey of learning and I'm very curious about it. But yeah, I just learned about the wings. And so I'm a seven wing with an eight wing. And um, it makes a lot of sense to me as I learn more and more about what a seven is, how they move through the world. Yeah. Just like my friend said, it's a tool for me to understand myself better and to learn about how I can be a better relationship with my partner <laughs> um, and my friends and um, yeah, the people around me on a day-to-day -day basis. Man, that's a fine answer, Scott, a fine <laughs> answer. Sevens, you know, um, are the joy bombs of the Enneagram. Oh, okay. And I, they are these remarkable human beings and they have this need to uh, pursue 
interesting ideas, fascinating experiences. Uh, they need to, they are the most future minded number on the Enneagram. They're always thinking about a future filled with unlimited possibilities and fun, adventure, escapades. What's next? <laughs> uh, they want to go to the next interesting restaurant, the next wonderful tracks, yeah. <laughs> trip. You know, I mean, uh, this, you know, it's now, you know, one of the things, one of the things, <laughs> I'm just laughing because it's like this is hilarious because it Scott like in most people well a lot of people identify yeah. their number by oh my god that's me I that's the, it's the one number I didn't want to be but sevens are the one number they're like yes that's me <laughs> I'm like yeah I'm a seven that's right you know put that on my CV you know wear a seven around my neck you know on, I'm all about it you know? there's hilarious. a reason why sevens when you hit the jackpot right seven 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 across the board right so I'm I'm all about it you know I'm 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 a seven and I'm proud you know that's maybe how I introduced myself you know like I used to be like yes I'm queer and I'm proud and I'm still queer and I'm still proud but I'd be like and I'm also seven, and I'm proud. So you know, like, that's <laughs> yeah. you're going to add. Yeah, there you go. Add yeah, exactly, on. exactly. Well, glad we could help. Glad yeah, we thank could you help. so much. Yeah. No worries. No worries. So here's the other side of the enneagram, though, Scott. The Scott, Scott. The the enneagram also reveals that you know, in a way, our personality arises out of trauma, right? It, it arises out of a wound, if you will. So. You know, often you'll hear from sevens that as little people, they had an experience of loss or uh, something very earth-shaking, and they became uncertain that there would be anyone there to support them in the midst of very difficult feelings, feelings that were too difficult for them to navigate. And so they created a kind of neverland in the mind, this fun place this place where they could avoid having to deal with painful psychological or emotional states. And the way they did it was by constantly living in a future of fun, a future filled with the new, a future filled with, you know, uh, unicorns and joy and happiness, right? And so part of the journey then, and this is the cool thing about the Enneagram, is it kind of lays out, well, what might your spiritual emotional journey look like? is partly like, well, how do I integrate or allow suffering into my life and believe that there will be people there to support me? Like, I'm not going to get stuck in this forever. It's going to be okay. How is this feeling for you? Does this sound like your story or not? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, that. yeah, it's interesting. I have a lot of like sort of, you know, places I want to sort of poke at it a little bit too. You know, when I was growing up, I grew up in Hawaii, um, born and raised there on the island of Oahu in a small town. Um, and, you know, we had this big mango tree in our backyard and my dad, be, so my dad and uh, he's no longer alive today, but, um, you know, we, he was a great man, a really charismatic, caring man who just like many people in our country, you know, struggled with addiction and, and that unfortunately, you know, created some decisions that weren't in the best interest of himself or, or others. 
and so he was in out in and out of um, jail a lot, and um, he you know was locked up for a significant time in prison. And I talk about this in the book, and but he was also a roofer and a really talented at like creating things with his hands. And one of my favorite memories is being you know a young kid and being obsessed with the mango tree in my backyard and tree houses. And so we went to Safeway and we collected these pallets and we like built a tree, like the super amazing tree house that I swear when I climbed to the top, I could see like the entire edges of all the islands or the contours of all the islands. And um, he was almost like an anticipatory like empath. Like he almost like knew that I needed a space when he went to prison for five years that, you know, his dad was, you know, my dad wasn't going to be around. I was going through these formative years in middle school, you know, reckoning with my sexuality and my place in the world and all the other things that like a 12 year old or 13 year old like goes through. Mm-hmm. And that was the place where I created my own like magic land. You know, like, I'd bring my stuffed animals up there at the time. I like didn't really have like deep connections with like friends or anything like that. So, you know, these stories became the place where I would like create friends and I would create like theater pieces and like TV shows, like in my mind and sort of emote through the stuffed animals, you know, and it became actually a place to process. It it was like avoidant, but it was also processing a lot of the things that I was going through because I didn't know where else to turn to. Like back then, like therapy wasn't cool. Like, you know, kids didn't have, well, I didn't have a therapist. Like I didn't know that was even a thing. Uh, Yeah. And I think that, you know, obviously that creates a sense of confusion when you're, you know, seeing your dad once a week, you know, in a, you know, orange, you know, jumpsuit, like you, you know, in this weird fluorescent light room during visitation hours, you know, a place where there's like chain link fences and barbed wire and you go through security lines, even as a kid, you know, and they're like, you know, patting you down. It's just like a, not a great way to feel safe, you know? And it also created a lot of confusion for me. And, you know, I was like, but my dad's a good man. Like, why is he here? Like, I don't understand why this is all happening. So it, it was, it was a very confusing time for me and for my relationship with him. And I think like did on an unconscious level and probably a little bit of a conscious level, create like a sense of abandonment, like a little bit of uh, resentment of your, you know, where are you? Like, I'm going through all this shit in my life right now as a 12 year old. And like, my dad's not here. When I look out and I see so many other kids with their dads, like picking up them up at school, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I think that that absolutely makes sense. And I've been known to really disassociate through my extroversion, um, especially in my early 20s and my teens and, you know, where I would sort of dismiss my internal feelings by focusing on other people. I even used curiosity in that way, in this sort of predatory way where I was like, I'm going to get curious about everyone else and just take up all the time with my curiosity about others that no one will ever even have the space to ask me anything. Mm. And then I'll never turn that curiosity inward because I don't want to face the things that are inside of me. Mm. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty self-aware that you're already yeah. catching yourself in the act of doing things that are, you know, uh, self-sabotaging and unhealthy. Yeah, well, definitely not as a 12-year-old. I mean, this is like more like on my journey in my 20s. Yeah, of course. And just, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't have the skills as a 12-year-old. I was just just kind of trying to find my way. I was doing, you know, things that are, like, looking back, were very harmful towards myself, whether that was, you know, the negative self-talk or, you know, self-harm. And so that's just, you know, something that I think teens today are still going through. You know, we have a, a huge mental health crisis. So that's, you know, I, I think... Um, yeah, I, I, one of the big things I had to just like reckon with is exactly your point that there are people who are there for me, even people that I didn't even notice, like my family, who maybe because of our context as an Asian family or just like the ways in which we don't 
you know, talk about emotions in deep ways or didn't have the tools to do that, um, you know, that they are actually there for me and even these like scary valleys that I'm in. But um, it took some time for me to really recognize that. Mm, yeah. 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 Hey, everybody, if you've been listening to Typology very long, you know that I am a huge believer in the intensive counseling programs at Restoring the Soul in Denver, Colorado. So I am super excited to tell you that now through the end of 2023, Restoring the Soul is offering special discounts to Typology listeners. So if you are at a place in your life where you are really wanting to press into those challenging personal or relational issues that keep you from the life you want to be living, listen to me. If you are in a season where personal or relational brokenness is weighing you down, now is the perfect time to contact Restoring the Soul. My longtime friend, and I'm talking 35 years, friends, Michael Cusick and his team of world-class therapists have created an intensive counseling process where you don't have to wait months or even years to find the personal or relational healing you need. Instead, you meet with them in half-day blocks over one or two weeks so you can get unstuck from the place you are to where you want to be. Now, Anthony, you have done one of these intensives with Michael Cusick and Restoring the Soul, right? Oh, man, I have. I love Michael. I got to be with him for a week. For me, he's like a counselor, meets spiritual director, and I would say he has razor-sharp perception, and he uncovered some things for me that were life-changing. I love that. So tell people about this incredible offer. Yeah, this is great. So right now, there's a special offer for Typology listeners only. Restoring the Soul is offering $1,000 off any counseling intensive that is booked before the end of the year and $2,000 off the regular price if you book and attend a counseling intensive in 2023. No. Yes. All right, so that's $1,000 off any intensive that's booked before the end of the year mm-hmm. and 2000 if you attend one of their programs in 2023. Yes. Amazing. That's a huge break. That is a huge, huge break. So listen, friends, take advantage of this amazing opportunity by contacting Restoring the Soul at www.RestoringTheSoul.com. That's www.RestoringTheSoul.com. So we say sometimes that the, the big deadly sin, quote unquote, that uh, the that sevens wrestle with is gluttony. And it doesn't mean about food necessarily. It means about experiences. It's like they want to jam as much fun, excitement, uh, interesting, mm-hmm. fascinating stuff into the present moment as is humanly possible, right? Spontaneity is a gigantic value. Um, you know, just... And I think you've actually added something to my list of things that I've never really thought about with sevens, which is curiosity. Mm -hmm. Like I think about my son who's a seven and he has a lot of your energy, man. It's like, like (laughs) I wish people could see you on screen right now because you have like, you have perfect seven energy. Just the affect, the face is so animated and the laughter and the the movement and the, the whole thing. Like there are other numbers on the Enneagram that, Definitely do not have that energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, yeah. Know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, totally. So, and it's wonderful. It's beautiful. And and my son, Aiden, is so curious mm. about mm. everything. I love that. Yes, he Aiden. is Shout so out curious. It's just, yeah, it's just fantastic to see. So I want to just talk about curiosity for a moment because I think it is kind of an undervalued or overlooked 
trait or yeah. behavior. Like, what is it? Like, yeah. what, how would you define curiosity? Yeah, it's, it, you know, the way I see it is it's a drive state, sort of like hunger or thirst. It's something that we're born with. We know that from the research. You know, infants will look at novel, you know, stimuli for longer than known ones. Um, it makes sense. Back in the day, our ancestors needed to be curious. So someone in the group needed to be curious to, you know, find water or track food or, you know, can I eat this berry? Can I eat this mushroom? What happens? Um, even just the process of, I was watching this TikTok video of how to create, you know, like the steps to create chocolate. Um and I was just like, someone had to figure that out. You know what I mean? Like, that is wild. Um, and so, um, but there's also um, intellectual curiosity and, and just learning new things. So when we, you know, had rituals like creating a fire, creating tools, um, we had to pass that along and people had to get curious about it. Even communication, right? When kids babble, they're like, ah, ah, wah. You know, that's like them getting curious about their vocal anatomy. And it's just like mesmerizing to watch. And that's the beginnings of them forming, you know, words and then sentences. And they're not just using their vocal anatomy as a, a curious force for language. They're looking at the world around them visually too. Yeah, so curiosity is something we're all born with. And I define it as, or many people define it as like this desire to know, the search for understanding. Um, but I also think curiosity is on a spectrum. So we often think about it as this like intellectual tool that we use to extract information about the world for like how much money did like Taylor Swift make or on their tour? Or, like, what is that tree in my backyard? Or, you know, how do you make beer? You know, whatever that thing is. But it's it's actually you can move it from the mind to the heart. And it can become a heart-centered tool, actually, that you can Love use that. to better understand other people, to understand yourself, to understand the divine. And it's a way of deepening your connection. So actually, curiosity is not just a way of knowing things. It's a force for connection. And that's what I believe. Um, mm. And that's what I'm trying to share with curiosity. And that the only way to, to tap into that is to take our curiosity deeper. Mm. So when you were talking, yeah, I, so when you were talking, you know, when you say like, well, I'm, I, you know, I wonder what, you know, Taylor Swift made on this tour, you know, it's yeah. like, to me, I, to me, that's not actually curiosity. I always think that curiosity is more tied to things like awe and, mm -hmm. and wonder, like wonder is a big mm -hmm. one or, or transcendence. And you mentioned mm -hmm. the divine, right? Like that curiosity has a, a, a slightly more poetic kind of timbre to it than just totally. you know oh i want to know what you know it's like totally. you know i remember uh just this value of going through life with just being curious about everything which you know is you know rather hard in a world where everybody seems to the presumption is i already know everything um but well can i say something before you move on there ian i love yes. that you're the the differentiation between curiosity as distraction and curiosity as connection for the seven, oftentimes for the unhealthy seven, it's usually distraction. They want to be distracted from their inner world and the 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 uns what's unsettled on the inside, what's unanswered, what's what they're anxious about. We often talk talk about how oftentimes the seven is one of the most anxious numbers on the enneagram, and you wouldn't imagine that. You'd think, oh, they're like the happiest, most carefree, but actually they they can tend to be really anxious. But I love that you're sort of using this idea and this tool of curiosity toward connection with self yeah. and yeah. with others like i love yeah. that That's yeah really and cool. um i'm an extremely anxious person i very much recognize that and also 
I don't want to give anxiety a bad rap. I mean, I think there's a lot of positives and, you know, it can be really a helpful tool for me, at least, you know, it's helpful for me to be really thoughtful and to create environments where I'm really thinking about everyone's needs before, you know, they come into a space like at my house. And so all the right dietary things are met and all the right, you know, you know, inclusive seating arrangements and all the things are like thought of. So, you know, it can be a superpower too. Um, but um, yeah, I, I, I was really struck by a lot of the research I was, I was learning from Dr. Judd Brewer, for instance, around, um, about unwinding our anxiety using mm. curiosity. So basically, you know, if you look at, um, phobias, you know, like a spider or a snake, the way that you can sort of reduce your fear, or your anxieties around it is to come into contact with it more. You know, you can think about it in your head, you can look at it on a piece of paper, you can maybe you know, seek places out where you might find like a spider or, you know, maybe even seen in a glass box somewhere. And the more and more that you confront and get curious about it and expose yourself to it, come into contact with it, you know, it really does reduce your fear and your anxieties around it. Um, and they found this to be true even with something like death. I mean, end of life uh, doulas, palliative care physicians and nurses, they'll actually use curiosity. You know, what you know, how did you, how was your life? Like, you know, what are the relationships that are important to you? Um, you know, how do you want to die with dignity? Like these kinds of questions and explorations actually reduce the end of life anxiety that people feel um, by actually confronting it, which feels almost like a catch 22 or like contra, or like an oxy, like how is that possible that the thing by confronting the things you fear or anxious about, it actually reduces that. And curiosity is a big reason for why. And yeah, and I, I just I, I just look at the world today that we're living in. We're just othering everyone. You know, we offer had talked about what's going on. You know, abroad and in Israel and Palestine, there's like these humanitarian crises. We have political crises of all kinds in our own country, and I think it's like we treat people like spiders. You know, we don't come into contact mm -hmm. with them. We're not curious about them, and we have these mythologies that just aren't true. Actually, wow. spiders are so important for our ecosystems, and we have created these stories and these narratives about them and other spiders into this really scary, dangerous thing, but they're so important. And so I think the same is true for people that we deem as other as well. Okay. I love that. Yeah. I love so, that. Yeah. And I love it that in the book, you, you actually, you, you just referenced it without saying it. You talk about the, that we live in an era of incuriosity. Yeah. 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 And I think the curiosity has to come in multiple directions. That's what I learned as a seven is that, we're, I, my understanding is that sevens are very curious outwardly. Like we are curious about the world. How does this work? This person that's in front of me, um, but maybe don't often turn the direction inward. You know, how do mm. I actually get curious about, you know, my feelings, my experiences, um, the relationships I hold, um, what makes me angry, what makes me sad, what I can learn from these negative emotions. And so that's been a practice for me to really exercise that as a muscle to direct my curiosity inward, not just outward. Mm. Love that. Mm. Yeah. You know, I remember actually, I think it was with Aiden, my son, when he was younger. And again, there was this sort of escapism, like a sort of, you know, like a little Peter Panny, you know, where it's like, I don't want to grow up. I just want to have everything be fun. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I remember saying, you know, to, you know, at a, when he was age appropriate, you know, something like, you know, that, that your inward, your inner world can be the greatest adventure of all to understand your inner architecture, the journey of your soul, of your life, of your heart, who you are. You know, it's not all external, right? It's, it's, um, it's something that, uh, you know, you can go on your, your own adventure. And of course, you know, 
we would say that the way that uh, sevens deal with anxiety is through optimism, mm-hmm. right? Yes. It's like, yeah. if I can just get optimistic enough, if I can just be happy enough, I'm yeah, optimistic totally. enough, yeah. right? It's like, it's almost like, um, did you ever see, uh, what was that show? Remember Yule Brenner, Anthony, what was it? You know, uh, oh gosh. Like Ted Lasso? I don't know. I don't know. It was like... <laughs> no, oh gosh, what was it? Anyway, there's a song in the show, Annie. Whistling in the Whistle in the Dark. Remember, it, it was about whistling in the dark when things were going to go bad. And it's just very seven. Uh-huh. You know, if I just whistle in the dark, all the scary stuff will go away. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. and and again, that inner journey is is an amazing adventure. And I think you're right, Scott. I think for many sevens, it, there's too much anxiety to look inward. And especially look, looking backward can look really hard for a seven, right? Like it's really easy for a seven to look at, to be future oriented, to look into the future where all the next exciting fun things are going to be. But it's hard for them to look inward at the past where some scary, unhappy things were. Yeah. I mean, I probably learned that lesson of looking in the past by friends and, you know, loved ones who are, are indigenous. You know, I think about, you know, the importance of ancestors and where you come from and and like the connection to land to the aina as it's called in hawaii by kanaka Maoli people but even to face the hard things i mean i got to in the book talk to Rai moran who's red river metis and you know there were these horrible horrible schools in canada called residential schools where you know indigenous families were torn apart you know children were killed i mean there's like grave sites of mass grave sites at these schools it's just really a horrible past but they said it's important for people to not erase this and to really hear these stories so that it never happens again. So Rye was in charge of statement gathering and brought survivors in a trauma-informed way to conference rooms and hotel lobbies and schools and community centers and parks to share these stories of what they went through in these residential schools. And you as a non-Indigenous Canadian had to sit there in your discomfort and be really curious and listen and just try to understand what a whole group of people in your country have gone through. And that is so important to look in the past because it helps us to construct a future that has more justice, where there's repair, where there's healing, and where we never re-perpetuate the things that are harmful. And that's at a societal level, but I think the same is true individually. If we're never looking at the past, how can I actually avoid the harms and um, and and not move forward with with you know healing and and my own sense of justice, you know, in mind? So you did something incredibly seven. And that is, and you talk about it in the book, right? You, you went on a 45,000-mile road trip around the country for, what, over a year? Is that what it was? Yeah, like, yeah. So 45,000 yeah. miles. Would have gone longer, s- too, if it wasn't for COVID, you know? Okay. Which, <laughs> <laughs> well, and you just did it, though, to see where, like, where yeah. curiosity would, would take yeah. you. Yeah. To, yeah. Like, what happened? What was, the, what was the takeaway? What was the big takeaway? I do want to say one thing before I talk about that, which is that um, I don't ever want to lose my Peter Pan joy. And I hope that Aiden doesn't either. And like, I hope people don't lose that. I think we can hold that while also recognizing the harm or what's going wrong or facing what's inside of ourselves. Because I was just thinking about COVID. I set up this viral joy hotline where you could call in and talk about, this is like in March, and you could talk about you know, and people come from all over, from Alabama, from Hawaii, from, you know, New York, from California, from Arkansas, like all over. And they, they called in to share one thing that was joyful in their life in the midst of all of this death and all of this horrific stuff that was happening at the mm. beginning of, of COVID-19. And I wasn't doing it to like erase what was 
going wrong and what how people were truly being harmed and people were grieving and dying. But I wanted to shine a light on the joy that still exists, you know, and that's why I did the project with David Byrne on like reasons to be cheerful. And we are not divided because the news only tells you like what's going wrong with the world. And, you know, it's also important to see people who are working in great ways to make the world and their communities better. Um, so anyway, I think that was also what drove me with the the road trip. I was like, I'm getting all this news and these stories from people that like a Trump voter is uneducated, they're illiterate, and you should fear them. I actually had people who told me I should bring a gun or a knife or pepper spray like when I go to these rallies, because there's a lot of fear right now and a lot of anxiety that people are feeling, especially when they, like the spider, never come into contact with people, you know, who embody these identities and don't recognize that there's such nuance that not all Trump voters go to rallies, that two Trump voters are very different. You know, like there's so much complexity in all of this. And Mm -hmm. so when I went to these, you know, like a rally, for instance, in Minnesota, I just said, hey, like I'm hearing all of these, you know, narratives about who you are from people who aren't you. Like basically people I'm, you know, I know in San Francisco, you know, what I see on the news, on like CNN, but there has to be more to the story. There has to be more to you. And I want to hear it from you. These are your stories and it matters that you tell your own story. And that's why I'm here. I am progressive. I am queer, but I'm, I come in peace and I come with deep curiosity of just wanting to learn your story. And people responded well to that. I mean, we're, we're also kind of like trapped for six hours in a line trying to get into the center so the arena, so maybe that's a part of it. But I think people just were not on the defensive when I said that. And I, you know, kind of came into the conversation with curiosity versus, do you know what your, you know, the person you're voting for does for our community, which is still true. I mean, there are, you know, real consequences and we have to hold people accountable, but we have to not dehumanize people or um, stereotype them all into one box either. That's not helpful as mm. well. And so, um, people then told me stories about how they were othered and they didn't feel like they mattered by, you know, folks who were on the other side, but their girlfriend's friends or that they felt very misunderstood. And I was like, look, I get that. I mean, when I was a kid, I felt like extremely misunderstood. Like even today, you know, people see me and they're like, you're Asian, you're, you're queer. And they think they know everything about me. I can imagine it's the same for you once you there, it's found out that you voted for Trump. And so, I'm so sorry to hear that. And, um, you know, and it's just, it's just, you know, it's, it's, I think we need more of that humanity in the discourse. Mm. Mm. I love that you have framed this in, in, in curiosity, because it sounds like what you're saying is that part of curiosity um, is necessarily is empathy. Right? Is that, I mean, that somehow or other empathy is a product of curiosity or it is Mm -hmm. a constituent part of curiosity itself in some way? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can only really be empathic, truly. I mean, if you actually have some action behind it, you know, if you actually get, you know, I talk about curiosity, deep curiosity as, you know, you're at the door. And traditional curiosity is just like looking through the people and you're like, okay, I saw, I saw everything that I need to, you know, like I understand the other side, but true deep curiosity is turning the knob, opening the door and walking, you know, walking through and experiencing what's on the other side, the people there, you know, what's really going on. And it's only in that way, will you have true empathy, right? I mean, otherwise it's pretty shallow in my opinion. Um, and you won't, and, and, and in addition to empathy, I think it builds compassion as well. It allows you to see like, oh my God, we all suffer. We all go through really hard things, uh, despite 
our ideological differences, our, our identities being different. You know, we all share this common humanity and, you know, I see you and I love you and you matter to me. I disagree with the things that you might say sometimes, um, but that's okay because curiosity is not about consensus, right? It's not about trying to, you know, get your agenda met. That's what I call predatory curiosity. Like it's what a detective does or a prosecutor, you know, they ask questions or open-ended. They're like kind of, you know, leaning in, you know, it's like, oh, that's curiosity, right? They're, they're like, they're like trying to learn things. I must be a desire to know it's curiosity. Well, no, because there's an agenda underneath, you know, they're mm. trying to get something, you know, there's a gotcha, but we even do that in like unconscious ways when our partner comes through the door, a kid comes through the door and we're like, you know, our kid's like, oh, I did really bad at the baseball game, you know, today. And you're like, no, you did, you were great. You know, you were amazing. You, you know, your team won and like everyone cheered for you and you were, you were great. And the kid's like, wait, like you're, you're contradicting exactly how I see the world. And that's actually determining, you know, their sense of trust. And they're like, wait, my parent or my guardian selling me something very different than what I feel inside of me. So, you know, in, a, in contrast, when you could say, tell me more about that. Like, why, why do you feel like you failed at that baseball game? Like, can, I want to better understand where you're coming from. That doesn't cut off the conversation or, you know, exert power over your child or tell them that you don't, you're not seeing the world in the right way. Instead, it invites them into connection and they can share more about like why they thought they failed. And, you know, maybe you learn, wow, our definitions of failure are different. Like I have a really extreme definition of failure. It's like the worst and I want to avoid it. But like my kid's like, no, I love it. It helps me to grow. It make, pushes me to like, you know, do better. So mm. yeah, I think there's, yeah, I, I think about all those kinds of things with, with curiosity. It's just, it's, it's not ending or cutting the relationship or canceling people or canceling the relationship too early. Thank God for it. I mean, or else, like we—I mean, we were already in a disconnection crisis, but it would be even worse. I think if we didn't mm -hmm. have curiosity. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because you did—you—you you referenced this, and I—but I want to highlight these two terms. You talk about shallow curiosity and deep curiosity in the book, right? So, okay, and I love that. Like there are—it's I would almost call it lazy curiosity. You know what I mean? It's like it's just—it's just too lazy to ask a deeper, a deeper layer of question. Yeah. So. And I would love it if, if parents and partners and others people could really learn the difference between shallow curiosity and deep curiosity. Mm -hmm. Because I think also sometimes shallow curiosity is just sort of like a um, doing, the, doing the minimum to get by, you know, curiosity. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because in El Paso episode, I heard you say that with the, the bicycle, the cyclist dude, that, and, and talk, when you all were talking about like um, sort of the, the laziness around like finding information and sort of... Um, yeah, but I, I'll, I'll try to remember which episode it was. And in, 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 uh, he was like a serial entrepreneur. Anyway, um, I actually don't, I, I disagree a little bit. I think that shallow curiosity isn't necessarily lazy. It, it's, you know, it's like, um, you know, it's, it's like the ocean, you know, the shallow water is not worse or lazier than the deeper part of the ocean. They just show you different sides to someone, you know, and that what's great about deep curiosity is you can see underneath the surface. You can see their stories, their values, their relationships, like more rich and beautiful things. But you don't necessarily want to start there all the time. You wouldn't want to like go to a conference and be like, what's your worst childhood trauma you've ever been through? You know, like, oh, that's my Scott. favorite. Like, but, but that's, but that's you know, my yeah. favorite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's I my mean, favorite conference. That, you know, and maybe fellows, a, maybe, but like, a, think about the seven, you know, that's like, oh gosh, <laughs> like this is not Peter Pan world anymore. Like, I don't want to talk to you, you know? Oh, so, um, uh, yeah. So I just think, um, yeah, I think that, yeah, the shallow curiosity can actually be a gateway 
to more depth. We just sometimes don't move, continue to move along the spectrum. And also sometimes we can't go deep because we're, you know, experiencing trauma. You're a therapist. I mean, you know, I mean, a lot of the trauma and for therapists I talk to, they're like, you can't get curious if you're deeply traumatized. <laughs> like it's very hard to access that. But paradoxically, you know, Kevin Becker, he's a therapist. He said, curiosity is a barometer of healing. So mm-hmm. when he sees that in his clients, he knows that they're actually on a journey of healing and that's a great sign. So it's it's interesting. It's like an interesting relationship. But shallow curiosity isn't bad. It's okay. Like that's a great way to exercise muscles. Like go for it, you know? I mean, that's but just don't forget to go yeah. deep as well. Yeah. So it's so interesting, isn't it? You're talking to an Enneagram 4 who would be far more interested in deep curiosity yeah, than yeah. shallow curiosity. Yeah. And I am perfectly fine going to a, uh, into a conversation where the first question is, so tell me about your deepest, darkest job trauma and how you've managed to integrate it into your life and how it's serving you today. That kind of stuff is like, okay, let's not screw around. Let's get totally. right to it. And it makes sense so, that a seven would be like shallow curiosity. No, we need that too, you know, because I'm like, wait, yes. the deep stuff? Well, ah, you know. Yeah. Like. Well, no, it's like, it's so, it's so great though because you actually – corrected me in a way that was so helpful mm-hmm. because you know uh one might say um well for example what's your what's your tell me you know okay your your name is scott okay so that's a that's a kind of a shallow curious question right what's your name oh, scott now what would be a deeply curious question like what's the story of your name you know what tell me more right. about where your name comes from who named you your relationship with those people who named you how do you feel mm-hmm. about your name because yep. you know especially in the the lgbtq community like we you know certain you know trans folks and gender non-binary folks like have different gender queer folks have different relationships with their name um that's like also called a dead name it's like their old legal like you know id name that they were like born with that doesn't actually sort of match with their their gender identity and expression so you know, I think that's that's also interesting. It can just like open up so much, you know, just in like the story of a name, right? So in relationship mm. to it. So this is interesting, right? Because it seems to me that curiosity is a profound expression uh, of love. So to be deeply curious, right, is to be uh, deeply interested or fascinated or curious about the other's deepest self, right? Like, oh, you know, so curiosity is a a way of expressing love. I love that. Yeah. A lot of people say love is a verb, love is a verb, but it's like, how do you do that? Like, what do you, what are the mechanics behind love being a verb? Like, how do I actually do that in my family, um, with my faith community, with my neighbors? Curiosity is a way to do that. And I have practices in the book on how to actually exercise it. How do you develop strong, powerful questions that you can bring into a conversation to take curiosity deeper. You know, how Mm. do you actually get curious about yourself by writing a vow to yourself? You know, why don't people who are getting married write vows to themselves about how they're going to show up for themselves to fully show up for their loved one and the communities around them? Why is it just about a vow to the other person? You know, I mean, there's like, you know, so there's all these sort of ways we can get curious that are actually fun and playful, which will like ring sounds of bells and sevens ears but there's like something for like one two three four five six seven eight nine in the book i promise and um yeah and i think that um you know it is it is love i mean that's why i wrote the book i mean i want people when you feel like no one is being curious about you everyone's just like dismissing you canceling you they're never asking you questions no one genuinely cares about you and what you're interested in and your values like how does that make you feel everyone almost everyone has had that experience and it makes you feel like shit. It makes you feel like you don't matter. It makes you feel devalued. 
dismissed. And in opposition to that, if people instead came from a place of curiosity and asked questions and they were genuinely interested in you and who you are, I mean, that makes you feel like you matter. That makes you feel valued. Um, that is love, you know? And so if you're ever like, like, how do I love my neighbor or my colleague that, you know, maybe because you're like pissed with them or something, you know, just using that act of curiosity and, and being genuinely curious about them is a way to reaccess that love. So what is the enemy of curiosity? Ooh, yeah. Like, I mean, like the, like the opposite, like what, what, what destroys it? What silences it? Yeah. Like breaks what, it down? Yeah. Like what, yeah. Like what, what cancels curiosity? Like what, what um, negates it? I think certainty, arrogance, like I have all the answers. I know everything I need to know about this person. Um, yeah. I mean, right. Like Aristotle was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure everything revolves around the earth. And then Copernicus and, you know, Galileo were like, no, like I'm pretty sure there's a sun out there. Right. But then, you know, the, the church and others came in and they're like, no, like that is not, you know, we're going to silence, you know, your curiosity, your ability to, you know, sort of, you know, change, you know, this historical precedence that's been created by Aristotle. Like he is right. We are certain. And I think that happens just in our individual lives. You know, it's like when we're not, we don't live in a society where we are comfortable with uncertainty. I think that's why so many people are afraid of death. You know, <laughs> like they, it's just like the greatest unknown in a lot of ways. And, um, but actually there's a beauty, um, in uncertainty. There's a beauty in not knowing, um, you know, not only is intellectual humility something that should be strived for by leaders and by people because it makes you more friendly and communal and more liked and <laughs> look less arrogant. Um, but, you know, my my friend Uma told me about this Jane um, concept, which is called, um, uh, I'm gonna, oh my God, I'm so sorry, everyone listening in, that is Jane. And I'm going to try my best to say this, um, but please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, Ana Tavada, which means roughly to live in their perhapsness. So that mm. this idea and this invitation mm. of living in the perhapsness, um, how do you just see that that is beautiful and it's a part of life when you're going through transitions and you're moving or you're, you know, going through a separation or, you know, you were just diagnosed with a really scary health, um, you know, diagnosis. How do you live in that perhapsness? What could that look like for you? Um, it's, 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 you know, and, and I think it's a really beautiful, beautiful way of thinking. So... First of all, I think that there are certain personality styles that are just inherently, by virtue of disposition and temperament, more open to what we call, in the big five personality structure, we call it openness to experience, right? And, and so curiosity uh, for certain types is easier. For example, for people who are dualistic versus non-dualistic thinkers. So a dualistic thinker would be someone who says everything is black or white, yeah. it's good or bad, it's right or left. Yeah. Non-dualistic thinkers are both and thinkers, yeah. not either not either or thinkers. So uh, a non-dualistic thinker probably is going to have an easier time with curiosity. Yeah, that makes sense, yeah. Because, because curiosity could lead to antinomies, things like uh, an antinomy meaning, you know, like uh, that when you have two things that look clearly in opposition to each other, but both are equally true. Totally, totally. It's very hard for certain personality styles to go with. Yeah. It, it, it makes it, and here's what happens. It makes them anxious. And I would say, it would seem to me that one of the great things that would be a buzzkill to curiosity is anxiety. 
Because anxiety is what actually drives people to have either or thinking. Yeah. To yeah. need people who are anxious need certainties. Yeah, that makes sense. Right? Uh, they're the ones that really need like uh, hard and fast, black and white. You know, the, I need things to be just so uh, in order for me to be able to function well uh, in the world, you know. Anthony? Ian. What if you could explore the depths of the Enneagram and gain access to valuable insights that can transform your life for just one dollar? Ooh, that's a pretty sweet deal. Tell us about the offer. Okay, bro. Within the Typology Institute, we offer this monthly subscription called the Enneagram Explorer. This subscription includes instant access to all, I said all, of the Typology Institute courses valued at over a thousand bucks. That includes Discovering You, Enneagram in the workplace and the true you course wow and anthony members gain access to our exclusive monthly typology institute podcast where you and i focus on a specific topic and share personal insights and stories and wisdom as it relates to the enneagram oh yeah and big question does this include our town halls Mm-hmm. that's Ooh. right it sure does yes enneagram explorers also receive the monthly invitation to join you and me live for our monthly town hall meetings where we connect and discuss and talk about what it means to grow through the Enneagram together as a community. And guess what, Anthony? Tell me. They also receive our newsletter and have unlimited access to our content library, ensuring they're always updated and well-equipped for their personal growth journey. Here's the best part. Tell me. It's only $1 for the first month. This is huge. So how do our listeners take advantage of this unbelievable offer? Well, Anthony, I'm glad you asked. For Black Friday through Cyber Monday only, listeners can sign up at typologyinstitute.com forward slash try. That's typologyinstitute.com forward slash T-R-Y and pay just one buck for their first month. Hey, everybody, I just want to remind you before I keep going, I'm talking to my new friend, Scott Shigeoka. How am I doing with the last name, Scott? Yeah, you're doing great. Right and oh my gosh. Oh, did you call me your friend? Okay, I'll take it. I, I consider <laughs> All you right. one too. Yes. Awesome. Yes. Hey, got on the I'm, friend board, y'all. Like, you're, you're yeah. live. <laughs> exactly. Now you can't walk back I'm, on that, like, uh, dinner invitation. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, no, I'm very excited. <laughs> come on. <laughs> you have to come to Mexico where I live, okay, though. Perfect. So you have to do it. So perfect. anyway, author of the new book, Seek, How Curiosity Can Transform Your Life and Change the World. And I'm on board with this, folks. Mm-hmm. I mean- I just think curiosity is a very underappreciated uh, virtue. Someone who's curious, I think, is like, it's, it's a beautiful exploration of something that we desperately need in our culture and in our own personal lives, in our love lives, in our intellectual pursuits, at, at, at every level. How can we be just curious uh, about the world around us and what it, it has to offer to us, right? Because if you're full of certainties, there's nothing new. Nothing can be mm-hmm, new, mm-hmm. right? Nothing hey, can, yes. no, no new thing can reveal itself to us. And see, and I do think this is how the universe works, right? Like the universe knows if you're curious, the universe will play with you. There's a playful side to curiosity, right? And I think the universe is almost like if you're curious, the universe will reveal things to you that, yeah. you know. Totally agree. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, yeah, I have those three directions. I talked a lot about the inward and the outward for curiosity, but there's also mm-hmm. the beyond, which is what isn't in the physical realm. For some of us, that's God, that's the divine. Um, it's consciousness, interconnection, maybe it's ancestors or future descendants, you know, whatever that is for us, it's what does not exist on the physical realm. And 
I know my belief is that like we are all, I don't know, we are all God and that this is our moment to be conscious of of that. And and I think for me to like really live into that spiritual belief I have, you know, I need to be curious because this is my opportunity. This is my life to really soak in what is God in other people and myself, in the world around me, in the planet around me, and the animals around me. So um, I feel like when you shut yourself off from curiosity, it's almost like, you know, it is death. And, and there is actually research to show that lower levels of curiosity can increase mortality rates. Makes sense when you talk to folks that, you know, especially those who are older, elders, you know, as soon as they stop getting curious about the world or a sense mm-hmm. of purpose or about themselves or being out in the world experiencing things, you know, and having an openness to experiences and places and people, I feel like that's when, you know, health determinants start to really start winding down. And, um, you know, and I think the research could, you know, pretty much support this. Like, and, and I think there might be a, a, a whole lot of other factors too involved with that. But yeah, I, you know, there's a reason why my elders always said, like, never lose your curiosity, especially when you get to that part of your lifespan, because that's what keeps you alive. It gives you that zest for life. And mm. so, so curiosity is not just love, it's living, which like actually living is curiosity. And when you stop doing that, I mean, what is the point? <laughs> what is the point of being here? Mm. So let's say someone comes to you and they say, you know, I'd like to be more curious, maybe by virtue of temperament and disposition. I'm not as open to experience as other people, but I'd like to be more curious. How do I, how do, I do that? Yeah, well, I think, well, first of all, I would just honor them and acknowledge that they have that awareness, you know, to, to you know, want to develop this as a skill. I would remind them it's a muscle. Um, and, you know, I would definitely not tell them that Trump story because that would probably be very intimidating. They'd be like, I never do that. Like, I would never go to the opposing political party. So I like to start small with folks who are feeling a little bit like, oh, I'm not sure how to get more curious. And small meaning, you know, start with yourself. You know, maybe there's um, a question that you can reflect on. You know, I have a bunch of question prompts inside of the book Seek that I wrote. Um, morning, every morning, just like, you know, you can go for a walk and just like think about that question and explore it in your mind and really live it for that day. Um, you know, you can uh, get curious about your loved ones. Instead of maybe going straight to the political rally of the opposing party, you could maybe your children or your parent or your loved one, your sibling, your partner, you know, ask them a new question. Even if it's a question you maybe asked 10 years ago, prior to when you were married, you know, their thoughts might have changed, right? Be Mm -hmm. open to that. And the more, again, it's a muscle. So the more and more you practice it with yourself and with the people who are closest to you, the stronger it gets. And then you can start to, you know, expand your circle of compassion, your circle of curiosity, you can say, okay, what about my neighbor this time? What about that colleague that I kind of am like interested in talking to, but I never have the words to say. Maybe I'll just Mm. ask them this question that I asked my partner. And then when she starts to feel like, okay, I've got competency, you know, maybe then you want to start to explore the beyond, you know, go to faith, you know, communities, you know, try different rituals, say yes to that invitation to Shabbat or to that interfaith dialogue with the imams and the priests, you know, whatever it is. And, and then you can like bench press 200 pounds and like go to the opposing part political rally, you know, but I wouldn't start <laughs> there. Um, you yeah. Know, so yeah. And, I, and there's all these exercises. I think that was important for me. I didn't want to write a book that was like, here's the problem and curiosity is great. Okay. Good luck out there. You know, I wanted to give folks, you know, actual concrete tools. That's why there's over a dozen research-based strategies that you can use in your own life to be more curious. Um, 
And yeah, you know, one of them is Back That Ass Up, which I love. I, they're all like fun and interesting and playful and very seven. But Back That Ass Up, which is a great hip hop song that I love to dance to. Um, but ass is short for assumption. So all the practice is, is just get, be aware of the assumptions you're making about other people or that you're even making about yourself write them down, name them, and find ways to pressure test them. Mm. And that might even mean having a vulnerable and daring and courageous conversation with someone like your mother-in-law or whoever it is that you feel holds you know, a certain view on you. And what you find is that those assumptions are usually not true or they're over-exaggerated. And they're actually not as grave as you had initially made it seem in your mind, especially for an anxious seven where we're like constructing narratives in our head about how everyone feels a certain way about us that maybe isn't so intense. Hmm. Wow, Scott, this has been an amazing, amazing conversation. And you've reminded me of two things. One is, I remember when I was about 28, I'm a, you know, I love to read. And, but I remember reading Annie Dillard's Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. Hmm. Did you ever read that book? I did not, no. Uh-uh. I, would enc- I would encourage you to read it. She okay. actually invented a, a whole genre of literature around nature literature. Oh, I love that. And uh, it's about her, yeah, it's called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. Hmm. And it won the Pulitzer Prize. She was 28 years old when she won it. Hmm. And it's about this deep exploration of a creek. I mean, it's like life in this creek. It's like crazy. Wow. Uh, and it's all about curiosity. It's all about curiosity, mm, mm, right? I love and that. about the end, the ability to see too. Mm. The ability to see. And she just uh, on this one creek, she basically went super deep into it, and and just like wow, into, that's really interesting. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, like into like into water bugs. Like it's crazy. I love it. And it's I love beautifully, it. beautifully, beautifully, beautifully written. Annie Dillard. Um, and another thing, and I'm sure you've done this, right? But one of the things that my wife and my daughter love to do this. When we're together as a family at a dinner table, there we don't ever allow there to be multiple conversations. Mm, mm, love that. That's great. <laughs> so we all do the old collecting question thing, you know, where like somebody has to bring a question yep. that is deeply curious about other people at the table. Love that. Yeah. Right? Sharing questions. And and yeah, and it's it's, you know, as goofy as it is, you know it actually has led to some really important conversations for us as a family. Yeah, that's so great. And I think to your uh, to your point, Anthony, about like there are distractions in the world. It's like our, you know, one of the, in the book, I, yeah, I have this motto called DIVE, D-I-V-E, and each stands for a different deep curiosity must. So detach, intend, value, and embrace. And I talk about what they are in the book. But intend, I, is about how do you prepare your mindset and your setting so that curiosity can really thrive. And so like in a dinner setting with your family, that might be like not having your phones out, you know what I mean? Which is like the mm-hmm. ultimate um, distractor in a setting. Or if you're having a curious conversation on the loud, busy subway that's supposed to be deeply personal and, and you know, that might not be the best place for psychological safety and curiosity to really bloom versus, you know, around you know, a dinner table at home, you know, where folks, you know, feel like they have a shared, you know, um, you know, a shared home here. Right. And so I think that that's really important to think about. It's like, what's the mindset we're showing up with when we're being curious and what's the setting we're in? And the mindset's about, you know, like mental rehearsal. Well, that's what athletes do. They like imagine themselves like hitting a baseball a hundred times. And then when they actually go up to bat, you know, they're more likely to do it if they go through the practice of visualizing it in their mind. Same for like free throws and basketball. It's been replicated by like psychologists like Alan Richardson. And 
yeah, I think that we can do the same thing. You know, if you're having a hard conversation with your teen, um, that's going to require a lot of curiosity. Well, like, don't just go in there like full guns blazing. You know, maybe that's what a seven might do. But, you know, just take that pause and think about it. Like, where are you going to be? What are the questions you're going to ask? How are you going to respond if some if they say something in particular that activates you? You know, and that just like helps the conversation to be a lot better. Mm. I love this, yeah. Scott. Scott Shigeoka. Yes. The name of the book is Seek, How Curiosity Can Transform Your Life and Change the World. Enneagram 7, Scott. Woo! We loved having you on the show, man. <laughs> it's a very 7 of me to be like, I don't want this to end. Like, I want to, <laughs> yeah, no, so, no, but I'm very- No, it under, is. Yeah, it was, yeah. Oh, it is. <laughs> oh, yeah, it totally is. <laughs> Appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. love this conversation. So, so much joy. Wow. Well, Anthony, are you as uh, feeling as energized and serenaded as you possibly can? Oh, be right totally. Now? And I just want to say, you know, you mentioned joy earlier when Ian was talking about his son. Uh, that really is one of the superpowers that you bring mm-hmm. to the world, and so it's really, really appreciated. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. And typology friends, please, please, please remember these words: May you have love. May you have joy. May you have peace. May you have healing, and may you have rest. Until next time. And may you be curious. <laughs> <laughs>